welcome back to The Drop. This is Michael Saramella here to talk about everything that happened this week in surfing. And it's another big one. I mean, it just doesn't slow down, really. We're at the end of February now into March, and I don't think we've had a slow week yet. Maybe one. Maybe one slow week. But we, we crossed that bridge, and we're straight back into the heat. First and foremost, Motel Hell. I'm sure you've already seen it, but what you don't have is all the backstory behind it. We chatted with Harry Bryant for this week's Stab interview. We're going to hear from Harry shortly. Sam McIntosh also put pen back to paper, or realistically, finger to keyboard, and he wrote a piece about everything that he's learned from nine years of making Stab in the Dark. We also have a piece about the WSL and how much credit they deserve for the women's performances in Hawaii this year. It's a bit of a hot one, this one, so get, uh, yeah, strap in. And then we're also going to talk about the 2024 ISA World Games, which are taking place right now in Puerto Rico, and we're determined the last 18 spots, the last 18 surfers who are going to get spots into the 2024 Olympics. And of course, we will end the show with a nice tribute to the WQS. Let's drop in. Mikey, last week we talked about Nazare. We did math. We did mathematics. I hope we got it right. It wasn't a very complex equation, so it would have been hard to fuck up. But I think I did fuck it up at one point. Somebody called me out in the comments. It was more just a a thing that wasn't meant to be in there than bad math. But anyway, pretty much right after that happened, within 24 hours, there was a massive swell at Nazare, which, I mean, I knew it was coming. That's why I was where I was, which was pretty much as far as you can get away from it in Europe. Like, if you wanted to go south, which I did, and you still want some Atlantic exposure, you couldn't get further away from it than I did. So proud of myself for that. Got some fun waves. I didn't get as big of a wave as Lucas Shianka did. And this thing, like, it's been going around. It's it, This has been a really interesting one to see the world react to. I, it is clearly a fucking massive wave. Could be the biggest. I'm going to, we, we ran the buoy data on that day, which was fairly accurate for many of the other biggest waves ever ridden. I'll get to that number. But just eyesight, do you think that's the biggest? When I see it, I look at it and I go, I need to... I, I don't want to look at this close enough to have an opinion right now, and I still I still haven't got to that point. I'd rather just looked at a buoy instead of like having an opinion just on eyesight. Maybe it's because I only got fucking one and I don't trust myself. But what's your read on it? Oh God! So I got I found out about this from Ben Mondi. Shout out Ben Mondi. Uh, he emailed me in a frantic foray of just like oh my god like lucas jumbo says this is the biggest wave he's ever ridden do we want to do a story on it and i really appreciate that when like writers you know get onto something really quickly because obviously we're in the news business we'd like to be on it first i just i couldn't he sent me the thing he sent me a bunch of frame grabs and images and stuff and i just i couldn't bring myself to care like i just to me it's like we i know we've talked about this so much we've just beat this dead horse into a pulp but there's so many things that are wrong with this whole chase for the 100-foot wave. Like, we talked about it last week. Like, what happens if somebody catches the 100-foot wave? Does Nazare become a small fishing village again? Blah, blah, blah. And it's like, this wave very well could be 100 feet for all I know. But what does it matter? Like, first and foremost, Lucas, incredible surfer, really great guy. I say all this with no disrespect to him. But, like, at no point is he riding on the part of the wave that is 100 feet, at least not at the point where it is 100 feet, if it is 100 feet. Like, by the time it's actually stacking up and standing up, he's all the way on the shoulder. 
that wave is, if the peak is 100 feet, that part of the wave is 60 or 50 feet. And then as soon as the wave actually like gets to a point where it's breaking and like getting critical, he dives off his board. Like how, how does this, you know what I mean? Like say they measure it and it is 103.64 feet or whatever. It's like, okay, you won the show. You're going to get your Guinness book of world records but like what the fuck does it matter he should go to one of those like you know how they have museums where it's like you can see old like torture instruments he should go to one of the ones where it like kind of stretches your legs to see if he can get that that shin bone just a bit bigger before they measure him you know because that could push him <laughs> over the edge it's going to be close when i ran the data so the buoy peaked at f- i thought you said there was a database huh i thought you said there was a database of shins of shins already yeah you told me that when we looked into this with the mason barnes thing i mean <laughs> i guess i would never make up a date i take shin data very seriously so <laughs> i wouldn't just make that up so maybe is there a shin database i don't remember saying that but uh, i hope i did that's just a funny <laughs> thing to say <laughs> Buck didn't remember this, so I had to go back and find this episode from February 18th of 2023. Oh, yeah. I have an update on this. I have an, You asked me about this, and I have an update. <laughs> they have his leg dimensions on file. They took them in 2020. <laughs> so this exists somewhere. Just somehow they have stored. Like, it might be on somebody's computer. It might be in a drive. But they presumably have just Mason Barnes' leg Somewhere where they know they could access it again because they did it. And I guess now they're like, no, we got the leg, dude. It's all good. <laughs> so there's, you're telling me there's a database with like 100 big wave surfers lower leg measurement. Yeah, they're coming after everybody on Apple Watch with the biometrics. They're doing legs. I don't know what the fuck Dirk Zip is doing here, but it is getting really weird, a little bit kinky fast. Anyway, I've got the measurements not of the shin here. But of what the buoy said, the day where, how do we peak the day this way was written? That is forty five point two feet at seventeen point one seconds. When, Jesus. Yeah, when we pump that into, and that's uh, that's max. That's not significant swell. That's the the peak of peak swell, peak peak period, everything. When we run it through our equation that we broke down last week with the Nazare enhancement factor, that brings us to ninety two point nine feet. So roughly 93 feet, just going to be the first one to throw a number out there. Again, looking at buoy data, as we saw that last piece, sometimes it's pretty damn close, sometimes it's far out, but uh, it was pretty, it was within five feet on a few of them. So if it stands here and if it's within five feet, not going to be Hunji, but could be bigger than Sebastian Stoidner's wave that was, I think, 80, was it 88 feet that joe rogan keeps saying was 115 <laughs> yeah i think that's right okay so maybe we have a new world record holder on our hands and if so congratulations lucas for becoming probably an even richer man um but yeah i just it's just not for me i'm sorry um i don't know what else to say it's yeah even if it was 115 feet actually it's just it's not surfing to me ah uh, well 93 feet you heard it here first and if it's wrong who cares? Watch Harry Bryant and Dab Fox's Motel Hell. We have been hyping this thing. This is surfing. This is this is better. This is no shin bones required, but this thing is finally here. Harry Bryant and Dab Fox's Motel Hell. I had the pleasure of watching it for the first time this week. Mikey, you'd already seen it, but I'm sure you've revisited it. And I mean... The reviews are in. 
everybody's fucking loving this thing, myself included. It is just a great surf film. I mean, two years in the making, 200K spent on making it. Um, we interviewed him about it. He did break a leg. He did Not, not his shin, but he did break a leg. He did break a leg. And I think my favorite thing about it... Needed more milk. He did need more milk. Good point. That is a theme. Um, we interviewed him about it because we'll get more into the details of the movie. But one thing I want to call out, like especially after that Nazare point, is in the interview that Ethan Davis did with him, Harry talks about just being so satisfied right now, just being like, life can't be any better. And I thought that was so fucking cool because I feel like that can be a really hard thing in surfing. Like, even all of us experience it in some way when you're like out on a day that's pretty good or pretty big and you get a good wave. Within like five minutes, you just want a bigger or better one. And I think like you hear people who talk about like winning a world title and still feeling that, all of that. So just to hear that Harry's just like truly basking in like this thing being out there into the world and well received, that made me really happy, Mikey. Yeah, well, I think it, it came from a number of things. One, obviously, his film has been absolutely loved by everyone who's gone to see it, both in person, like there's been huge sold out premieres, and then now online, it's blowing up. And he ended his year with that crazy 30 at Pipeline and the Vans Pipe Masters, which we'll talk about shortly. But before all of that, like Harry went through a lot of shit, basically, to get this to get his life to the point where it is right now. Like he he spent a ton of money on this thing. He spent a ton of time. He said he drove across Australia five times. He broke his leg. He broke up with his like very, very long-term partner. Um, and he said that surfing and build, building this film was basically what got him through all of that because he was just so like passionate about it. And, you know, with the help of friends and, you know, partners in this thing, like you said, Dav Fox and also a guy named Lob, um, he pulled it off and to like put that much time and effort and care into something and then to see it finally come to fruition. That's obviously where that sense of like achievement and, and like, Oh, I can finally just like enjoy myself for a moment comes from, which to your point, that's really like, I've never really felt like you feel good about something for a small moment, but it's really hard to kind of like actually in, like relax in that moment and feel that for an extended period of time so it i'm really happy for harry that he's at that point right now yeah and i mean he also talks about just being aware of how lucky like when he talks about why he likes to surf and why he's you know done all this it's he just talks about realizing that he's so lucky to have something like surfing which is an outlet that lets you just go have fun and especially when you do it at his level um and especially when you're able to travel the world and do it as a job he's like just very aware that he is insanely lucky and it's cool to hear people express that he had some funny other thoughts in the interview i know you wanted to touch on the the pipe wave and the boardy road but uh the thing opens pretty strong he, he we lead with a punchy <laughs> quote don't we yeah we sure do do you want to uh read it uh, i'll have to pull it up to get it verbatim but that's a click away all right as harry told ethan davis I hate seeing the younger generation of surfers being so clean cut and putting so much emphasis on their future and training and losing the fun and joy of surfing. I think we've just gone through a really dark patch of not having any Kellys, Andes, Joels, or Tajas. Now we've got all these San Clemente clean cut robo kids basically running the show on the WSL and it just doesn't seem real to me. I'm not trying to encourage kids to drink booze and smoke dope and go and slash people cars and shit. I just want people to be happy and actually just appreciate how lucky they are to be able to serve and have an outlet that basically lets them live a happy, enjoyable life. So I I like that. I think uh, I think it's nice that he kind of called 
something specific out. It's easy to not do that. It, it's like you said, he'll kind of say what's on his mind and, and cop it. But I think quotes like that are more powerful when they're not so vague and that's not very vague. And I like it. I like it. And I agree with his opinion. I think it is. You need a bit more fucking mongrel back and he's bringing it back. Give me some milk. Yeah. And it's also cool, too, that, um, you know, vlogs have been kind of like just the trash can of like surf commentary. Like it's so easy to just talk shit on vlogs and YouTube and stuff. And obviously that's one of the things that these San Clemente robo dorks, to use his term, uh, have definitely been a part of that culture. So you would think that Harry would go the other direction, but it's actually quite the opposite. After he's released his film, he's saying like, yeah, I'm actually going to start getting into YouTube. That's why you saw the film release on his YouTube so he could start to build up his subscribership and he's going to be making a push on there. However, it's probably going to look and feel a lot different from what you see coming out of the States because Australians definitely have... um, more of a like taste thing when it comes to content that comes out yeah i mean would you rather watch harry bryant sleep on a moroccan bodyboarder's couch through ramadan (laughs) or watch somebody make a smoothie it's it's pretty simple (laughs) that's true but it is funny because ethan um separately in a piece that we published a couple weeks ago he predicted that this would be the year of aussie surf vlogs and already we have one that just started last week with dion ozzy and creed and now uh, Harry's jumping into that world as well. So, yeah, it's going to be an interesting year on the YouTube side. Wow. I mean, I know that they say things about the Internet there being a little bit slow, but uh, it turns out vlogs just hit there. <laughs> hit the North Shore eight years ago, and it just got made that journey down south through the Pacific and arrived. So congratulations, folks. Anyway, this film, incredible. Um, do you want to, anything just stick out to you? The whole thing was fucking wild but any any specific part you want to call out mikey i just well i love i mean he talks about how he wants to bring fun back to surfing and surf filmmaking there's obviously all the skits i really just loved the part um when he made himself really small and he was riding those mini waves that were supposed to be like a you know miniature reincarnation of namibia you'll you know what i've yeah everybody's seen it by now i'm sure i just really enjoyed that part it was like so cheeky and fun and playful like uh, and then on top of that, he goes to surfing some of like the heaviest, gnarliest waves in the world. So that's really what stood out to me the most actually from the film though, is the waves that they get and just how hard he's charging. Like the fact that he only broke one bone or one body appendage during the entire filming of this is crazy. Like he pushed it. Yeah. Yeah. He made Morocco look fun as a goofy footer, which is hard to do if your name isn't Ramsey. Um, never seen somebody look that, make that place look that fun before you know, going back in, although he does find that crazy left. But um, I agree with you on how hard he's going. And I've actually got a theory there. So there's a time, what, go back 10, maybe you have to go back 15 years, but the best errors and shit you're seeing were in films. And so I think at that point, it was pretty easy to assume that things were going to continue to go that way, that free surfers and especially free surfers making films would be doing more and more errors and really pushing it. Then I think it got to the point where the errors that you see in WSL heats are kind of on par with what you're seeing in films. And so free servers pretty much have no other option now. Either beat Felipe at errors or go find the most fucked up waves and charge them. Like you're 
to make this interesting, you pretty much have to do what you can't see on the WSL. And with their waiting periods, with you know the restrictions of surfing a 30-minute heat, I think the most obvious answer to that is going and finding, just being on the craziest swells anywhere in the world and really pushing yourself there. What do you think? And then make a vlog about it. And then make a vlog about it through Ramadan on a bodyboarder's couch. <laughs> well, another thing that Harry can do as well is surf in specialty events. He obviously got a call up to the Vans Pipe Masters this past year and rode a very special wave. And I saw him the the night of that wave and he was just like on a high that I, and I've very rarely seen anybody at, like not high like drugs, like I'm sure he was drinking a bit, but like just on like a spiritual mental high. It was like he was levitating. Uh, so he's going to bring us back okay. through that experience and uh, what role Mike Ho had to play in it. Uh, the, the kind of lead up to that day and catching that wave was, was pretty special. Um, it was just like, I, I've never actually felt like, anything like that in the ocean before like i was in the exact right place at the right time and something i knew something like really special was kind of looming and like i just had some insane people in my corner and like every, just the support crew and things and we we're all hanging at this house on the beach um and there was no like you know hysteria from the contest there it's just like a real happy um, nice place to nice place to hang out. It's like a little safe, a nice little safety net of, of people. And um, yeah, my 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 was kind of telling me to ride the biggest board that I had that day. And it was weird because the the lead up to that day was like it was kind of small all day, but the swell kept building and building through the day, and the trade winds were coming up. And I remember like ten minutes before my heat started. Uh, I was tossing up, riding my 7.2 or my 6.5, yeah. and Mike Ho was sitting at the bottom of the stairs that I'd have to run down to surf my heat, and he's telling me all day to ride my 7.2, biggest board you got, and he kept walking past looking at it, being like, that's the board, that's the board, that's the board, <laughs> and then I was like, all right, like... All right, I'm I'm riding it. Like I can't I can't t- run past him with any other with any other board under my arm than that. So I just kind of ran down the beach, paddled out, and then as soon as the hooter went, I just paddled out the back. I just saw this big teepee coming out the back towards me, and it just I could just see it coming from a mile away. And everyone on the beach reckons that that you could see it from like out at Third Reef. Like it just kept you could just tell that it had such a good angle to it and there wasn't really many good waves that were breaking that day mm. um so yeah sure enough i just remember coming like paddling over a wave and just seeing this thing stand up like on the second reef but it didn't really cap out the back it just stood up like real solid and i kind of took off like behind the boil at, at pipe it was kind of like in between it was like it was like out from back door but in between second reef and and first reef pipe and i just kind of i just kind of remember getting into it pretty well um because i obviously because i I had a bit of extra length and and the board was glass pretty heavy i just remember getting into the wave um really nicely and then kind of taking a pretty steep drop and then just getting a really good pump like high line into the tube and pretty much from then on all i could see was just white water and foam and like the nose of my board and then the tail of my board was up in the air and 
um, it was so turbulent and so loud, like in inside the tube. And then all of a sudden, like I I did all this hard, I I, I got through all the hard part, and then my board just kind of took form of like a a glossy bowling ball that was just like flying down a fucking uh, a bowling alley. You know what I mean? And then I was just like felt like I was coming out. And right as I knew that the, the, I felt the momentum and the wave was pushing me through, I remember still being in the tube and I remember looking to the beach and seeing everyone jump up on the sand and, and everyone in all the front yard of the houses go skits. And it was like, as the wave spit and I came out of the tube, the whole beach <laughs> and everything just erupted. And I could actually feel, it was like being in a footy stadium. Like I could feel the, the vibrations and everything from the beach. And like, I don't know, I just... I, it was like one of those like blackout kind of moments that I was just like so overwhelmed. Like I didn't even people were like, How like how didn't even you claim or like throw your hands up or anything like that? And I was just like, No, I didn't even have like time to think about anything and like I, I actually just came flying out of the pit and wanted to jam a turn at the end more than anything. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's around you. <laughs> <laughs> so, I don't know, and then yeah, and then I kind of like paddled back out the back, and then they would like announce that I got the perfect thirty, and like yeah, it was a it was a special, it was a really special, um, a special day. You know, it was like a lot of a lot of things were going on that day. You know, and and I'll and I'll remember for for the rest of my life. Like that was probably one of the most special days I've I've ever been a part of, and and feeling the the love from from everyone in in Hawaii and. Uh, I just kind of felt like that wave chose me and, and I was like in the right place at the right time and yeah, it was a really like a really special moment. Observations from nine years of stab in the dark. There is only one person who could have written this and his name is Sam McIntosh, stab's founder. Dylan Roberts could have written it too. Dylan, I, he could have observe some of these things i'm not sure if he's got the command over keyboard like this um although sam says he doesn't really back his his skills as a writer i think he's fucking incredible at it and this is a great read it's almost hard to talk about it it's like these things you could tell are there's some funny personal anecdotes in here um and yeah like he's like the title suggests it's nine observations i guess we'll go through I guess we'll go through some of them, but I don't want to give too much away here. Mikey, is there an observation that sticks out to you? Um, I think sitting in a closet with Mick Fanning drinking a bowl <laughs> of tequila. <laughs> That's not really an observation. That's just something that happened <laughs> that led to uh, a stab in the dark with Mick Fanning. Yeah, I mean, Sam has just been at this game for such a long time, and he's had so many relationships with like the top surfers in the world. And this piece basically goes through that and kind of like interesting moments that he's had throughout the nine years of Stab in the Dark, um, how they came to be, some mishaps within, and also the, the 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 kind of like through line of all of it is Stab in the Dark, as much as it was like a great idea, it also was the perfect way at the very beginning for Sam to get to test all these different boards. So Julian was the first tester. He made a lot of sense at the time because, you know, his star power was super high. He also didn't have a surfboard sponsor. 
um, which meant that he didn't have to be partial to anyone and he could really just ride all these boards and pick the best one. But he also happened to be the same exact size as Sam. They were the same size boards. So that was like what really started it. And then by the end, and not even not even by the time that we got to Kolohe, but a few iterations thereafter, uh, Sam rode his stab in the dark board or a stab in the dark board for the very last time. And the story behind that is hilarious. And it involves Lunata Bay of all places. That was my favorite. I mean, they're all really good, but I think that's the closer. And that one is just so fucking good. Um, Good way of describing it too. Like it starts and he talks about being Julian size. And there's a really interesting story about the Pizel in that first year. Um, that just goes to show you how subjective surfboards can be. Uh, it's a fa- fascinating one. There's a few more that also show just how subjective surfboards can be, which is, I think, part of why what makes the series so compelling. Um, and then, like you said, like you, you learn a lot about how this is made, too, through reading this. Like You get these little anecdotes, but then you also get these things like the the mix story that you brought up. Like You obviously you learn how that interaction even happened. Um, and then you learn that within, I guess it's probably 12 hours within being locked in that closet and being locked in a closet, drinking a bowl of tequila with McFanning, they had agreed to do a stab in the dark. Like, I think you get these little anecdotes that show that like maybe on the outside, it might seem like it's things would operate in some other way where there's eight meetings and it's like meeting with fucking, every sponsor and some that is listed on somebody's surfboard in these like formal settings and like agreeing like that, but they are really just so from the fly like this. And uh, yeah, some incredible stuff about the times when Sam has tried to just push the narrative certain ways, which again, I don't want to reveal, but that just shows you like what's going on behind the scenes and how these things come to life and how just real the whole thing is. It's, it's like, can assure you that yeah you're locked in closets with mcmanning bowls of tequila you're not sitting at a fucking stale ass boardroom at some company headquarters just shaking hands and shit it's a it's a great story and the, the lunata bay one is just my favorite can we tell that one in a little bit more detail or is it gonna spoil it no people people have to read this one this is one of those ones that like you just have to get into it premium members will have it in their inbox over the weekend uh you, you'll also be able to get it on the site but this is all to set the stage for, well, two things, really. One is Stab in the Dark X, which is year 10 of Stab in the Dark, which we're really excited about. We're planning right now. There's a lot of variables in the air, I will say that much, but we are uh, doing everything in our power. X is the ultimate variable. <laughs> That's true. We're doing everything in our power to make it the most special Stab in the Dark yet, but also setting the stage for Ep4, the finale of Stab in the Dark with Kolohe and Dino. We have our four finalists. They are DHD, Axel Lorenz of Pukas, Timmy Patterson, and Chris Borst. And all four of those shapers, I believe, will be at the La Paloma Theater in Encinitas this week. It's going to premiere on Tuesday, March 5th. And they're all going to be on site. Kolohe is going to be there. There's going to be a cool little chat on the uh, stage, as I mentioned last week, between the surfers. Uh, Stab Premium members should have already gotten an email where they can RSVP to attend this event if they're going to be in town. Um, And it's going to start uh, both online and in the, uh, well, actually, at the premiere, it starts whenever it starts. But online, we're going to launch this one at 7.30 p.m., PST. Normally they launch at 5 p.m., but this one we have to push back because of the premiere. We don't want any of the shapers knowing who wins before this thing goes off. 
Uh, and Buck, I know that you have a couple in Europe. Do you want to shout those out as well in case people want to visit? We have March 8th in the UK and March 9th in Portugal. So obviously it premieres on Tuesday, but we chose the weekend just so we could get a bunch of people together, especially March 9th in Portugal. We'll be in Peniche, so CT will be around. It'll be a great excuse to be there. So I will, I'm going to write a story today just saying, hey, Europe premieres. So go find that for all the details on the site. We'll also be sharing these on social media. And if you are a premium member in either of those countries, you'll be getting an email from us inviting you to them. So I'll be at the Portugal one. Hope to see you guys there. Yeah, we've got a couple in Indo, I believe, as well. You can find most of the information on our Instagram for sure. And we'll try to get something up on the site as well. So uh, yeah, it's going to be a great show. I I do know who wins. I'm a little bit bummed about that, but <sighs> I've heard that the way that he gets there... Don't even say anything close. I'm not going to. I'm not going to, but I've, I've heard that the way he gets there is is really special, So, um, and he goes to get some really good waves as well. And of course, we have Unlucky 13. Uh, yeah, a lot to unpack in the final episode, so uh, we'll be back next week to chat about that winner, um, but yeah, Stab in the Dark. It's It's our biggest project of the year every year it's kind of like stab's marquee project it's the one that really kind of like defined us in the early years and obviously has sustained all these years thereafter so it's a really big moment for us and we hope you uh can share it with us shout nat johnson you hipster how much credit does the wsl deserve for the female progression in hawaii is this a hot one i think this is a hot one mikey (laughs) can we label this hot one this is a bit hot, yeah. <laughs> Could we do a little alarm? Cameron, put an alarm in here. Woo woo. <laughs> All right. So, if we've been hammering it, it was the most obvious apparent thing in the past fucking five years of surfing. What happened in Hawaii this year on the women's front was next level. It was the biggest push we've seen in terms of progression in surfing in probably a fucking decade it was huge you um just no point for me to even speak anymore because you saw it with your eyes there's no words i could use that would get it across we know it's all happening so the question asks how much credit does the wsl deserve for that and oh boy it gets hot from there um well you got to think like okay so on on just a very surface level like the whole rule in science is correlation does not equal causation. But if you look at the fact that about three years ago... So we looked at causation for this. <laughs> <laughs> about three years ago, the WSL opened up pipeline for the women. They, they made that a proper CT venue. And in that time, you'd have to say that the average performance level out there of women has gone, what, like 5x? Like it's been astronomical and it's it's not even close. So if you look at it in that sense, you think, okay, the WSL changing basically just their schedule and giving women access to pipe has made their performance go through the roof. So that's sort of like the starting point of this conversation. But then we dove a little bit deeper. One more thing to call out though. I mean, the progression level, yes, is obvious. But one thing I learned from this piece, holding Dr. Coco Ho for it, as well as many others, but Coco said leading up to, or this winter leading up to the Vans Pipe Masters and the fucking Hyundai Pipe Pro, um, there was a 50-50 split between men and women in the water at Pipe 
for quite a few of the sessions, which was just unheard of years ago. I think it's so cool. That was one of the coolest things. Like having not been to Hawaii in a few years, that was awesome to read. Yeah. Well, the okay. Here's the thing: is the WSL naturally likes to paint a picture that they are responsible for this. They made a whole ad in the Vans Pipe Masters, a WSL ad in the Vans Pipe Masters that basically like just was like, oh, we brought the women to Pipeline and blah, blah. Like, it's very much like that is their narrative now. However, there are some people who would argue that that was not always their narrative. And in fact, they were and sometimes kind of like pushing against allowing women to compete at some of these venues. So we talked to Keala Kennelly and Betty Depolito, who are two women who have been fighting for years and years in the courts to get basically equality for women in big wave events. Let's just look um, at I just saw the details here, right? Let's look at that. In July of 2019, the Committee for Equity in the Women's Surfing, which was started by Kayla Kennelly, Andrea Moeller, and Bianca Valenti, in Holden's words, effectively declared war against the World Surf League regarding unequal state of pay. So like you said, this was provoked by the Mavericks surf contest, but they went all in, just said that... Uh, Basically, the WSL runs these events in public spaces. Um, that's the ocean for you. It needs permits for it. And paying men and women unequally was unlawful. I think that was what they were, their kind of argument. Per their side of it, talks of WSL were not going well. WSL didn't seem super uh, responsive to that. Pretty much told them they were tripping if they think equal pay was going to happen. Again, that's July of 2019. All this is going on behind the scenes. September 2019, the WSL announces equal pay. So, what the fuck? I mean, it sounds like they just kind of realized that they were going to lose a fight behind the scenes and then just copped it and then framed it as we're the most progressive thing ever. No? am I? I didn't get to see the response from the WSL. It, that was kind of my takeaway here. Am I wrong? They that is kind of how it appears when you look at the dates and times and the the different you know arguments that were being had. So it's hard to say. I mean, on one hand, you you have to look at first of all, like we're talking about pipeline, but the women have gotten chances at like Tahiti and Cloudbreak before that. So it's not as if they were completely barred from like barreling waves. Um. And then on the other side, you have to think that the WSL is, at the end of the day, they're a league, but they're also a business. And I'm sure at all times they're thinking, one, what is the best for the sport? And two, what is going to keep us afloat? At the time, it maybe didn't seem like the most profitable idea to be paying women equally, to giving them equal opportunity at waves like Pipeline and you know, if you're Sophie Goldschmidt, you're the CEO, but you're ultimately answering to the people who are keeping the WSL afloat, which is the owners, um, Dirk Ziff and Natasha Ziff. So it's hard to know without having been in the room um, and part of those discussions exactly where the WSL sat and even who we're defining as the WSL. It is, the, is it the owners? Is it the people that work for the company, etc.? At the end of the day, uh, I think we got to the right answer which is probably in large part due to the efforts of women like Keala and Betty Depolito and Bianca Valenti, etc. So thank you very much for your service because where women surfing has gotten to as a result is just unbelievable. Um, but yeah, the, the, the facts don't look great in the WSL's direction, but also 
I think they've done a great job with the situation that didn't appear to be going in their favor and now is. Yeah, I mean, I guess you got to spin it somehow. But uh, (laughs) to your point, I mean, nobody's questioning where we ended up. And to be fair, they have no responsibility to provide a platform for surfing at all. (laughs) Like, like, I I think every pro surfer should be grateful that the WSL exists just full stop especially paying the prize money that they do, even with a mid-year cut, all that, like there's no reason for them to be doing that, really. Uh, at least not a financial reason, unless you, know, you want to say, oh, it's a fucking tax loss and blah, 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 write it off. But uh, yeah, I think surfers should just be, I think pro surfers on the tour and fans should just generally be grateful for the WSL, but it was fascinating to learn about that whole backstory Again, we got mostly one side of it, but knowing how the WSL has kind of uh, marketed that and and framed that and just kind of claimed it, just it's it's interesting. It's interesting, but hey, look where we're at now. I know, but you see Molly's turn. There was one example in this story though that I couldn't get past, and it relates again back to the Vans Pipe Masters. So the WSL are the champions of women's surfing and women's progression and these heavy waves. But we know for a fact that Katie Simmers desperately, desperately wanted to compete in this year's Vans Pipe Masters held in December, which interestingly enough is actually a WSL sanctioned event. So the WSL is connected to the Vans Pipe Masters, despite the fact that obviously it's not part of one of their tours. There are no points involved with it, et cetera. Um, The WSL is involved. So Katie wanted to surf in it, but because she was a CT surfer, technically her contract says she's not allowed to compete in outside events. She petitioned um, Jesse Miley Dyer. She sent her a letter specifically requesting to surf in this event. Katie was a finalist in the prior year's Vans Pipe Masters. Um, So that's why Molly, as the winner of the Vans Pipe Masters in 2022, she got an exemption into the 2023 Vans Pipe Masters. But despite making the final in 2022, Katie didn't get in. And the WSL shut her down. Um, And she missed out on a really special day in women's surfing. It obviously, you know, that meant that we got to see surfers like Sierra Kerr and Aaron Brooks step up and make the final alongside Molly and um, and Moana. But it is really interesting, like when you are kind of presenting yourself as the champion of, you know, women surfing in waves like this and equality and you're running this ad in the Vans Pipe Masters, but then you don't let one of the world's top women surfers compete in an event that would only allow her to gain more skills and become more confident at a wave like that. Granted, Katie went on to win the Pipe CT a month later, um, but I don't know. It just is interesting and it's telling that they they really only are looking for it when it kind of like suits them when it you know benefits them it seems. all right the isa world games let's talk about that mikey we ran a story earlier this week breaking it down a lot of numbers here folks get your calculators out we've got 272 surfers competing for 18 remaining olympic spots there are seven rounds, 12 repercharges in the men's division. It's a different structure to an event than you're used to if you're a WSL fan. The heats are coming, going by faster, too. I think they're closer to that like 15-minute range, which is interesting seeing the world's best who are all there competing. 
kind of in that different format. The waves have been fun, but not great. A lot of airs I saw. Gabriel went pretty nuts in his heat yesterday. Have you been tuning in, Mikey? It's well, Now that I'm in Australia, it's definitely a tough time zone. I'm kind of getting on toward the back end of the day. But yeah, there's a lot of interesting things going on. Um, the site piece breaks down really well, like who's already qualified for the Olympics and kind of what is required of other people to make it there. But yeah, to your point, like if you are in the men's division and you lose in the first round, you have to surf through 18 more heats to make it to the final, <laughs> which is insane. And um, we've actually already had a couple notable losses, and that means like double losses because it's double elimination from the event. So Kanoa Igarashi, who has already qualified through the, um, through the CT last year, he has lost. There is a rule this year that CT surfers need to actually try in the World Surf Games because in the past they've kind of like half-assed it and, you know, lost in early rounds because they don't feel like surfing 20 heats, uh, which is understandable. But Kanoa lost with a six-point heat total, which going back through uh, history, I don't think he's had many of those before. So you can take from that what you will, but you can never really prove that somebody threw a heat, can you? Um, (laughs) Also on the women's side, to me, a surprising one was uh, Erin Brooks. I really expected her to do what she had to do in this event to make it to the Olympics. She got second in the last World Surfing Games overall. Uh, So I I thought that it was going to be something that she pulled off, but, you know, it's it's competition, 15-minute heats, anything can happen, etc. Felipe Toledo is also in the the repercharge round right now. Um, And then the people who really have a lot to gain from this event on the men's side, kind of bigger names, are Baron Mamiya and Gabriel Medina. But even if they were to win this event, on an individual level, it actually wouldn't mean anything if their team doesn't win because of the way that the the system is all structured. I'm sure you understand there are two people per gender, per nation, but you can win an extra slot for your team if you win the World Surfing Games as a team. So basically, Baron and Gabriel not only have to do well themselves, but their teams have to do well too. Unfortunately for the U.S. side, they already lost Tyler Gunter, who was their third surfer alongside John and Gabriel. How Tyler Gunter ended up as the third surfer? Is... He's always there. He's always there. He is. He is Mister America. It's crazy. We have so many surfers in the CT. Griffin pulled out due to some sort of medical thing. He got a waiver from the ISA, which is weird because he seemed totally healthy in Hawaii. But anyway, yeah, the fact that it doesn't fall back on like a next highest rated American on like the tour or something is strange to me. But anyway, uh, yeah, we're watching how it all plays out. Uh, on the team side, France is the only team on the men's side with three men left in the main event, at least at the time that we're recording this, followed by Brazil, Australia, and the U.S. Both have two men still alive. And on the women's side, no team has all three women left in the main event, but Australia, Costa Rica, Portugal, Spain, and Brazil all have two women still alive. Um, and yeah, any people that are going to make it from the repercharge round have to surf through like a crazy amount of heats, but it has happened before. So we'll be keeping our eyes peeled and obviously updating you on which 18 surfers make the leap from the 2024 ISA world games to the Olympics. Yeah. And I'd recommend giving it a watch too. I've, I've been really enjoying it. It's a good time for me, uh, time zone wise. So yeah, like I said, the waves, aren't anything special don't look like they are going to be anything special but i think that is kind of fun it is i almost feel like makes you more motivated to like go serve some 
what's more likely to be your day-to-day waves rather than just rely on it being cooking the whole time. It's pretty shit here right now. So I think maybe that's part of it too. I'm like, yeah, watch these guys grind and I'm going to go grind. Um, but it's fun. I mean, and looking at the draws now, it's like you'd, you'd watch any of these heats anyway. Like Juan Duru, Baron Mamiya, Gabriel Medina is the first seat of men's round four. Like, duh. So big names to the left. You get to see them in fun waves, do some cool airs and shit. Go get there, and we'll keep you posted on how it shakes up. Mikey, what else we got on this site? We got you did some surfboard stuff this week. There's a joyride coming, and you did some surfboard bingo. Yeah, that's true. You were real. You were real board heavy. Yeah. Well, there's board nerding out this week. Hawaii. I mean, you saw so many different like top surfers on different equipment than they usually are. So we did a bit of a deep dive into that, like Katie Simmers, Jack Robinson, Betty Lou Sakura Johnson, Kanoe Igarashi, a bunch of finalists and winners, basically, um, all on different equipment. Some of them were Hawaii-specific. Others, however, have the potential to reach into the rest of the CT season and beyond. So go give that a read, and we'll obviously be keeping a close watch on Portugal. Um, another thing is Portugal starts soon. So we'll have a podcast dropping with Stacy and myself. We'll have an event preview on the site from Paul Evans. We'll have daily coverage by our buddy Pedro over there. And I think Buck is going to try to cause some sort of ruckus on site as well. Maybe. Yeah. Yeah. I'm going to go up even. It was looking like uh, better for tomorrow. Now it looks pretty shit, but I still might go up. I'm going to do the bet online picks for this event. So I was going to have some fun. They like, yeah, they build, I swear, it takes them like a month to build and then a month to take down the comp structure. And so it's already been in the works for a while. And I mean, the WSL is probably not going to let me very far in there, especially after the rant, that last one. So I'm going to get in that podium, I think, while I can <laughs> do some picks from this just like halfway finished, no, it's probably three quarters of the way now set up, uh, hopefully, unless they've already have it locked down, which I don't think will be the case. And uh yeah, it's all happening. But I think before- I did tell Buck that if he um, he was he was told by Tom Bird, our resident gamble enthusiast, that he should on top of picking some winners in the men's and women's side, he should also make some round one picks. And I told Buck if he happens to pick all twelve of the men's round one winners, I would give him my bet online account balance. So good luck, brother. Wow, I know I'm gonna hold you to that, honestly birdie will too so if you can do that at super tubos like i hats off dude you deserve it you can have all my money and i hope you reinvest it in other surf bets because you are yeah you're there ah i know it's hard though the forecast looks weird the forecast looks weird folks it can change it changes a lot this time of year but i gotta say it's the event starts the sixth or the waiting period does and Things look pretty fucked the first few days. There will be fun waves on the coast, just not there. Well, I have some good news. That means that we can all have a great night on March 5th, which, again, is the Stab in the Dark finale. Uh, it's going down in at 7.30 p.m. PST, and we already told you about some of those premieres that are going on. And one last thing for next week is we have a Huey Vaughn Stab Edit of the Year entry. We talked a lot about this last year. Actually, it was going to come out, but they decided to hold it. And I think it was worthwhile. I've seen a sneak preview of this thing, and it's very, very impressive. Nibbler coming. Nibbler. That's the name. That's the name. Well, we were just talking about the CT. Mikey, there's only one way to get to the CT, and that is through the WQS. Should we find ourselves a listener and test their knowledge? I think we should. All right. Please, let's do it. Let's go. Let's go. 
Amazing. Well, thank you for for being here, Josh. Are you an avid drop listener? Yeah, dude. Yeah. Big fan. And uh, what about on the site? Or do you stay pretty up to date on everything that's going on? Yeah, very pretty close. Yeah. Okay. Definitely. That's good. You're going to need that because uh, we've got three questions coming your way. And should you get two? Oh, I'm dead. Yeah, you're going to get your <laughs> staff premium membership comp for the year. Uh, what do we got here? All right, um, Buck, do you want to kick us off with some questions? I, I would love to kick us off. Question number one. This week, we wrote a story about all the different board brands surfers were sampling during the Hawaiian leg of the tour. One surfer who's consistently used boards by their non-sponsor in Hawaii is Kanoa Garashi, who's ridden what type of board to two Sunset Beach finals in the past three years? Is it A, Pang, B, Takoro, or C, Arakawa? Oh, that's a tough heat. Oh, I. A, you are going the pang, and you have gotten question one right. Canoe rides a Glen oh. Pang out at sunset, typically a 6'6". Six, six. Glen Pang is also the head shaper for Town & Country Surfboards, which is a brand based in the center of Oahu, equidistance between town, the south shore, and country, the north shore. So one for one, you're looking pretty good. Well done, Josh. Josh, how do you well know so much about Hawaii? Where are you from? Tell us where you're from in Australia. I'm from Byron Bay, Suffolk Park. Um, funny enough, I'm pretty sure I draw, um, saw you drive past my house yesterday. Is that right? <laughs> yeah. Go on. How did he drive well? I was like, how do I know that guy's head? I was like, oh, I think I'm going to be on the phone with him tomorrow or today or something like that. And Yeah. So he looked like a good driver, was it? That was probably. Yeah, the I want to know. What's that? I said I, I want to know if he was a good driver. Oh, I was in front of um, there was some roadworks going on, so it was stop signs. So I'll give you the benefit of the doubt. Okay. <laughs> he was sweet. Oh, wow. Am I like correct? Are you around Suffolk at the moment? Yeah. What are the odds? That's crazy. Well, yeah, I'm at the Stab office here in in Byron, so I'm I'm staying in Suffolk at the moment. Uh, that's Classic. funny, Josh. We got to go for a surf farm here. Yeah, sounds good. All right, you're one for one so far. Let's get into question number two. All right, if you go three for three, Mikey has to buy you a beer. But for now, question two. This week, we released our joyride on the Campbell-designed toe model, which made by father and son shaping duo Stuart and Ryan Campbell, which is made by, you got that right, I understand it. The Campbells have created a proprietary Patent-protected EPS construction that uses a mechanical spring to alter a board's strength and flexibility. What is their construction called? Is it one, Exoflex, two, SpineTech, or three, Astroglide? What do you got? Far out. That's a hard one. I don't think I read up on that one. Ooh, oh. then you got, you got a one for three chance here. To, to be fair, in Josh's defense, this actually, at time of recording, this isn't live on the site yet, but I did do another <laughs> joyride on this brand like two years ago, and they had the same construction. So if you're a true Stab fan, you can pull this one from the archives. Wow, this is a deep one. So let's give them the options again. It's A, yeah. Exoflex, B, Spine Tech, or C, Astroglide. Far out. B? 
I felt like A would be good, but. Ooh. B, Spine Tech belongs to your friends at Channel Islands. The correct answer was A. You should trust that gut, man. The oh. Stringer alternative is best compared to a leaf spring on a car. It uses super thin layers of a carbon composite material laid over top of one another to create a customizable flex for each board. More layers equals more durability. Fewer layers equals more flex. Mikey, how'd the board go? Fucking insane. Um, yeah, this is one of my favorite boards that I've ridden in a long time. And I honestly think these guys, after testing two of their boards over the last few years, are making, they're kind of like one of the smaller brands making the best high performance boards in the world. Wow. Cool names, too. Yeah. All right. Well, he's one to get two. this premium membership. The beer is out of the, t out of the cards now. Mikey, you want to bring us home? Yeah, let's do it. All right. Question number three. This one's for all the marbles. Um, although I would still like to surf with you, even if you lose. But this week, we premiered Harry Bryant and Dav Fox's Motel Hell which featured three years of Harry and friends traversing the globe via lactose-infused desert romps. One skit in the film featured Harry on a camel towing which surfer behind him on a mule or maybe a donkey. I'm not exactly sure what the difference is between those two animals. Was it A, Wade Goodall, B, Dion Aegis, or C, Aton Osborne? Oh, C, Aton. Oh, I got it. He did it. Yes, Josh. Got it. Done. What well a, done. What well a done. Yeah. I did all right. Did what I? did you think? What did you think of the film, by the way? It was so sick. It was um Yeah, it was totally different. I thought they were just charging going as ham as you could, to be honest. It was kind of gnarly. That's right. <laughs> and so the uh the gnarliest part of the film, I think, for me was Aton and Harry surfing this crazy, crazy reef somewhere in Australia. I'm not gonna name it. Um, but there was actually, we, we talked to another person who was there that day who surprisingly towed, uh, which is sort of against their norm. So this is your bonus question. Who was the ultra famous heavy water surfer who towed the same Australian slab on the day that Aton and Harry paddled it, calling the wave a man eater? Nathan Florence. Good, man. got it. Well done, Josh. Well done. Well um, done. It was just the XO that got him. Yeah, and that was a bit of a trick question, to be fair. So I'm glad he was. <laughs> Thank you, as always, for listening to The Drop. And yeah, Stacy and I will be back on shortly, probably early next week, with our pre-Portugal episode, where we will give you our picks, predictions, forecasts, etc., even some betting options, because I know a lot of you like to get in there on betonline.ag with us. Uh, yeah, a lot more to look forward to. Um, we'll get to see who is, makes it from the Olympics. We'll get to see how Portugal starts off, what sort of boards people are riding after Hawaii, where it was sort of like surfboard bingo. And uh, yeah, I think that's all we got. So until next week, over and out.